everybody. Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I'm Justin. This is... This is Derek. How's it going tonight, buddy? You know, not too shabby. What about yourself? It's going good. Not, uh, like you said, not going too shabby. Pretty good. Glad it's Friday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank God it's Friday, right? Yep. Um, and... Thank you to all of our listeners out there. I know that uh, we haven't released our episode on par as we normally do. And that's just simply to uh, some changes in, in my schedule. So thank you for bearing with us. We will uh, get this next episode out to you shortly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just life. It's not, not any one, you know. I don't know. There's no blame or anything like that. It's just, we do what we got to do. We do what we got to do is right. Uh, lots of interesting stuff in this chapter, no? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we'll have some good stuff to talk about tonight. So I'm excited for it. Um, before we get started uh, with the chapter, though, I would like to, I guess, mention a couple things. Um I guess first, maybe we can get our uh, obligatory Wheel of Time reference in here out at the beginning. Um, but Avienda was cast today for season two of Wheel of Time, so that's pretty exciting. I know I, I sent you, uh, I sent you that on Twitter, and I'm pretty excited to see her take the screen. Uh, I don't remember her first name, Ayulo. I think Ayulo Smart. I've not seen anything with her in it that I know of. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, damn, like, yeah, that's, again, I think they just nailed the casting on that. So I'm just excited to see the second season come out. I would a hundred percent agree with that. When you sent me that, I got as giddy as a schoolgirl. Yeah. It's just exciting to see, you know, I, I get the impression that the people behind the show really care and. As a fan, that's exciting, and um, everything I saw regarding her was really super positive. And then, uh, you know, I read a comment where somebody, you know, said that they're just not about all the negative feedback. People were bitching about her, uh, you know, that she was race-swapped, and I'm like, what? I have not seen any of this. And then, like the rest of the night, that was all I saw, and... It's to me, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Um, I'm I'm sure she's going to be a great actor again, not knowing any of her work. But I mean, I see all these actors, and I can get behind all of them. Like, okay, like yeah, this is this is this is what I was thinking. So I'm like again, just really excited for it. They were angry because they were. I mean, because the the race didn't in, like match their envision like that that's bullshit that's stupid absolutely stupid yeah it's really stupid so. I, I don't i don't i don't understand why people make such a big deal about it like it was they had the same reaction with Nynaeve because yeah. it was a, a black actress and everybody is imagining Nynaeve as as this white chick and, and i you know i commented on somebody's post i mean i admit you know when i first started reading these those books you know i i just kind of pictured everybody as white because I mean, I mean we grew up in a at the time a predominantly white town a predominantly white school i just 
didn't really know any better, but I certainly wasn't butthurt about it when they cast Nynaeve and just the attitude she portrays on the show. I'm like, okay, like, yeah, it's, just, it's definitely Nynaeve, you know? It's just like, I don't know why people get so worked up about stupid stuff like that. The actors nailed that role. Like, I, I like now when I'm reading, like, when I eventually go back and read those, reread the Wheel of Time, I am going to be putting those actresses' faces to the words that I'm reading. And oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And even I think the the one I can you know like Perrin like when they first released who Perrin was I'm like, God damn like that is Perrin to a T like I didn't know it but that's Perrin and yeah, I don't know I just I, I don't know why somebody would be upset over such a minute detail as to how the person physically looks because they're racist motherfuckers and they don't want to admit it. I don't even know what to say. Just she's going to be great. I mean, the show, yeah. I mean, it's deviated from the books. Sure. And even that, I mean, I can get behind. It's not the same. It, it's a TV show. They're going to have to make changes. So, right. They're not going to be able to include everything. I mean, even, even if they were to do it like line for line, I, I mean, have you ever seen the other attempt at the Wheel of Time series? <laughs> yeah. The I Winter mean, Dragon? Right, yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's what it was called. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I would have to say that was probably more in line with how the prologue from Eye of the World starts off. But, God, fuck, that was hard to watch, dude. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, I... Enjoy it for what it is. We've got a Wheel of Time TV show. Like, who would have thought we were ever going to get that out of you know a fourteen book series? I also books with the prequel. Right, right. I wonder how they would. Well, I suppose they're probably integrating some of New Spring into into season one potentially. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how they would go back and do that book. Yeah, maybe they won't really include much, I guess. But I know that you know some of the characters have been included. But I mean, we also I also know that Avienda wasn't introduced until um, you know pretty decently into the Dragon Reborn, the third book. So we know that the second season is going to cover book two and you know some parts of book three. So that's what I would imagine. Um... But yeah, I speaking of TV shows, uh, a little upset about this because from what I understand, Netflix's animation studio got shut down. Um, but from what I heard or from what I read is that they were well, they were gonna revamp the Redwall series into a show. I, I had not heard that. So I was a little disappointed to read that because it doesn't sound like that's gonna come to fruition, but you know. I, I totally, you know, in in my downness at work today, uh, totally looked up the Redwall movie and started watching it. On YouTube? Yep. Yeah, I wa- I've watched a couple episodes on there too, semi-recently. It's good shit. It uh, follows the book pretty closely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the other maybe kind of random things I would throw in. Uh, this is our first episode that we're recording. I've got a computer now, so I don't think I'll sound 
like shit anymore. I'm excited for that. And uh, we are up to 60 Twitter followers now. So thank you, everybody, for uh, following along, hanging out. Fuck yeah, dude. 60? Weren't we? You were, we were at the last episode. We were near 50, weren't we? Yep. Hey, we're so climbing, been climbing the ranks. Trying to be engaging and uh, put us out there. You're doing a much better job. Uh, Instagram, we still only have nine followers. <laughs> I've never used Instagram, so it's all right. No, it's okay. I just, I feel like, I feel like it was when the internet first became like, like a widespread phenomena. I was definitely a late adapter when it came to the internet because it was one of those things where it's just like, cool, this thing exists, but what do I do with it? You know, um, it was like finding your dad's porno for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Except a lot more of it. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, I guess I just associate that with Instagram. I'm like, cool. I can see pictures. What do I do? Like, maybe I just need to get out there and, and search some of the, the Malazan books of the fallen hashtags and, and you know, kind of take it about the Derek method. But I'm just even even with social media and, and the ability to hide behind stuff, I'm still pretty shy. So. Hey, but we're, we're doing this and, and I'm the same way, but it's. It's a little different when it's not, you know, I, I feel like it's different. You know, it's not a, our own individual personal account. You know, it's, I feel like it's a little bit easier to, to be more outgoing. Right. And I a hundred percent agree. And, and maybe it just, it'll take me a little bit of time to, to break out of that shell a little bit, but the, the instances that I see mainly on Reddit where folks are like, Hey, I'm dabbling into, you know, Gardens of the Moon. Like, I don't know what to think. I tried reading it before. I had struggled. So, like, any type of spoilage uh, information that I get, uh, I totally avoid. But if it's, like, a preview subject line, like, hey, I'm struggling or I'm having a hard time, then I'll, like, open it up and read the post. I won't read any of the comments and I'll just write a comment saying, Hey, me and a buddy are doing blah, blah, blah. You should check us out. Yeah. It's a good, good way to do things. And, uh, hopefully we can get a little bit of exposure that way. I think so too. Um, and you know, also, you know, we're, I don't, I wouldn't call us experts because we're going through it for the first time. Um, but we are going through each chapter and we're breaking it down and, and kind of surmising it to the best of our abilities. And as well as taking a, a humored kind of adult approach to these characters as well as the serious side of things and breaking down the things and the interactions, the environments, the, 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 you know, story building and, and all of that wonderful stuff. Right. Yeah. And so far it's been a lot of fun. It's been a blast. I look forward to this every week. Like it's fun. I, I do too. Um, well, any uh, other random things you wanted to throw in? Uh, like story related or just bantery? Whatever. Uh, no, I mean, 
the only segue that I that I have is is I don't know about you, man, but I'm missing Tattersail soft pillows right now. <laughs> I'm excited. To, I'm excited to see if if she pops up in the new in the the next couple of chapters because I am missing her pillows. I would think we will have to be seeing uh, the other set of characters here pretty quick. Yeah, and at the end of at the end of the episode, I've I've got a theory about our other friends. Well, I can't wait to hear it then. Sweet balls. Well, uh, let's let's get into chapter seven of Gardens of the Moon. Uh, you want to take her away, man? Yeah. So here we go. So we start off with, uh, or I don't know if it's a haiku or what it is, a poem of some sort. I'm not smart with those types of things, but it reads, I see a man crouched in fire who leaves me cold and wondering what he is doing here so boldly crouched in my pyre Gadrobi epitaph um, this one as after we go through this section here um, I, I feel like it was a pretty direct uh, I guess story to what that was referring to here but a summary of uh, this this first section in uh, what are we on chap this was chapter Seven, did you say? Chapter eight? Sorry, I don't even remember. Chapter Chap- seven. Chapter seven. You're right. We have Krupp. Krupp. He is dreaming again and walking out of the marsh gate along the south road, then to Cutter Lake Road. Krupp comments on the color of the sky, which is silver and a pale green, and says all is in flux, and that the coin has entered the boy's possession, though he knows it yet. Knows it not. He sees an outcrop of trees and a figure sitting by them as they burned. The figure turns to face Krupp, Krupp, Krupp and asks if he was summoned, if, if it was he who summoned him, and that it had been a long time since they had walked on soil. Krupp says he has not summoned them and thinks that they are an elder god, which as I was reading things, I have got strong vibes that... Uh, Whoever this was, was a god of some sort. The figure replies that they are Kroll. Krupp was right. Kroll says blood has been spilled in the city on stone once holy in his name, but blood is not enough. He waits for the one who will be awakened, someone known from long ago. Krupp asks what they brought him. Kroll says an ancient fire that will give him warmth in times of need. Find the Talan IMS who will lead the women. They are the, quote, awakeners. And that he must go prepare for a battle that he will lose. Krupp thinks Kroll is being used, and they respond that it is possible, but child gods have underestimated Kroll before. He will lose the battle, but he will not die. Kroll tells Krupp to play on every god falls to a mortal's hand. That is the only end to immortality. Krupp thinks this is very wise advice and takes it to heart as he thinks it is a great truth told to him. Krupp watches the fire. It did not consume the trees and did not burn dim. And that made him shiver. Talking to no one, Krupp says, in the hands of a child this night, Krupp is truly alone in the world. So the whole burning trees things, I like... 
as I was reading that, I just thought of like, like immediately just uh, the story from the Bible and Moses finding the burning bush. I don't really remember much of it, beyond, you know, what that represented or anything. Um, but that was just like kind of the picture I got in, in my head canon. And then uh, Kroll talking about where blood had been spilled on a stone that was holy to him. Um, was it last chapter where we had somebody, I don't remember who it was, but somebody shot somebody, one of the assassins on top of the roofs and the tower, there was a Kroll's tower, or I can't remember the word that they used for it, but, um, something in his name was there and, and there was a death there. Yes. The, uh, the assassin, I'm forgetting his name, but the one that, uh, was going to shoot. Or the one that shot at Crocus. I forget his name. I feel like yeah, I, he was. I don't up. remember offhand either. Right. I feel like at the beginning or at, at that in that section, he was. He, it. I don't know. I read it as like he was going to be a major player, and then he just he died within the same chapter. So uh, I don't remember his name. So that was, you know, like the, I guess you know the kind of the big takeaway was from this part was we we've met an elder God and he, he's going to be facing some sort of adversity here, uh, you know, fighting a battle that he's not going to win, you know, and, and group now needs to find uh, this leader of the women. And at first I was thinking, you know, is, is he supposed to find Tattersail and, you know, her crew. But then I was looking it up in the index and glossary and i don't think that tattersail is talan ims so I, I think it's he's looking for somebody we haven't yet met is is what i'm thinking but i'm not 100 percent sure um i think well if you remember i and very i mean the talan ms was briefly mentioned in the first or second chapter of this book but remember they are the undead army led by lacine so that is what I think K, K, K Rule is talking about, is that they are to seek the woman that leads the, the Talan MS, which would be, in, from what I understand, is the scene. Okay. I will agree with you. But then, like, my question is, and, and maybe this is just me not, like, I feel like this, this chapter was distinctly confusing. Like, not that I didn't understand the events that take place, but, like, where does where does all this mean? Like, I know that, you know, you, you talk about Karul Tower, and it was Tallow. That was the name of the assassin. It was Tallow. Um, you know, his blood essentially being spilt, not exactly on Karul's tower, because I feel like the shot came from that tower. Um, and I, I think that's what, he's essentially trying to say is that murder took place not necessarily like at the literal sense like oh blood spilled on my tower so now i'm back <laughs> type of thing i kind of, i guess i kind of thought it was you know like that there was actual you know yeah somebody got murdered but i to me i i felt like it was more the actual blood than the act itself but that was just my feeling interesting uh yeah i guess there's i i mean it could mean so many things but, yeah, and it might not be something that we really get a payoff for, you know, one way or the other. 
I mean, it's definitely an introduction to an elder god. And at this point, you know, I feel like he's been mentioned a few times, but we've never had any type of like conversation with him as far as any of the other characters either. So it's, I guess the way that I envisioned this section was, I know that you see like an outcrop of trees burning. I, I imagined it as like bums over a fire. Not necessarily that the, the trees around them were on fire, but they like he was he was sitting in at a fire and Krupp essentially joins him. And they're both like warming their hands in the fire, having this conversation. But yeah, we definitely have different takes on that, which is more than fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we just it's funny how you can read the same words and just have different you know, a different vision for those words. Right. Or just, you know, yeah, get a completely different, you know, uh, design of, of how you imagine these, these characters interacting. Yeah. But that's what makes it fun and, and cool. And, you know, we just have different, I, I don't know if I want to say ideas, but kind of ideas. Right. I, I, I guess I'm just, I'm curious. I, I guess what I'm kind of dumbfounded at is like, what exactly is is bringing this elder god into the fold? And and not even like this is any type of reality. This is this is a dream that Krupp is having, which I know that you know he's got essentially prophecies rolling around in his head. So is this some type of like foreshadowing to something? Um, that has has yet to be revealed so and also like who's he battling is he is he preparing to battle the awakeners which are you know the Tulana mass or is he battling these like child gods yeah i don't know i i didn't really get a good grasp on that yet but i'm i'm sure that's something that will expose itself here before too long yeah, I definitely think that the intention of the section is to 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 throw another, you know, mix into the equation problem, so to speak. Right. But also that like the the would at the end when Krupp is is talking to himself and you know, where he's saying like this night Krupp is truly alone in the world. I don't understand that either. And at the same time, it's like, it's like, it's like hauntingly beautiful. He has this interaction with some type of elder God who says all of these very strange things to the reader that we are observing, but maybe not have any type of comprehension for. Krupp seems to kind of, I guess, disagree, you disagree with me, kind of has this understanding of, of what it is that Karula is after. Yeah, he seems to kind of have some idea. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to you know, read and find out. <laughs> it's like uh, anything else here, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, um, I thought it was cool being introduced to an elder god. So like, as we're getting more familiar with, with this book, uh, 
some of the you know the things that we have speculated on in episodes past it is cool to kind of see come true yeah for sure what do you say should we move on to section two do you have anything else that we can uh add to that um i do not have anything else to add no let's uh take off here uh in this next section we are met with our circle breaker he is meandering towards the docks of Jerusalem after being relieved of his duties at the Barbican Gate. Dawn is, is near approaching, and, and the wind from across Lake Azure smelled of rain to come, even though the, wan, the wanning night sky above was filled with stars. As the circle breaker nears the water, memories of his childhood revolve in his mind. Memories of Freeman privateers, which I took as pirates, roaring into the bay from mysterious ports. Adventure rang on the lips and heart of his memories as as a youth. As he reaches the foot of the stone pier, thoughts of his time from his youth rush into his mind. And the many crossroads of age and experience almost seem like desperate or faded. And he seems, and I took this as he seems to be reflecting on his own, on his journey from childhood to where he is now as an adult. And he wonders if desperation is only for the youth. As he pops a squat on the pier's stone wall and watches the tide wash in and out, he looks to the right and, with his gaze, follows the slope upwards towards the summit of Majesty Hall. He has the thought, never reach too far. A lesson he learned from when he was on a pirate ship, sinking and burning in the middle of the sea. Scholars recalling the incident had said that it was the fall of the Freeman privateers. His thoughts turn to the standstill that occurs occurs at Majesty Hall because of the assassination of Councilman Lim. The council running in flurries and speculating rather than focusing on the matter at hand. Councilman Orr followed even following even the smallest trail as his sure win was snatched from him at the last moment. He reflects back on reaching too far and recalls that the day that the Eels agent reached out to him, his fate was sealed. As we wait for the Eels agent, he thinks about Termin Orr and that his only defense against the cunning man was the circle breaker's anonymity. The circle breaker would deliver a message to the agent of of Eel. Out of fear, he had written a plea for help. But even though he had written the plea, he seems to be having extreme doubts about asking for help. But he can't face Turban or alone. Removing the scroll, he opens it up and then is, is kind of forced into another crossroad. And he chooses to rip it up. He hears the sound of a coin spinning in the back of his mind, and he thinks to himself that the the sound sounds sad. Circle Breaker then leaves the pier. The agent of the L would simply not meet his contact and, and move on. Circle Breaker heads up the street and enters his room, and it's said 
to the reader that he allowed himself no space for memories, so nothing could mark him in the wizard's eye or tell the sharp-witted spy hunter details of his life. And in his own room, he remained anonymous to himself. Dude, this was such a depressing section. Like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even begin how to, to describe it. I just, I just felt this guy's like sadness. Yeah, I kind of felt like he should have just jumped off the pier instead of sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he contemplated it. Uh, I mean, it, it, nothing is alluded alluded to suicide here, but I, I, no, no, not at all. I just, I, I guess nothing has been revealed about the, you know, the circle break. I mean, we don't even know his name. We know he's an agent of the, of the eel, but like, why is it that he would be going up against Turban Orr? And, and, and in what way? I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, the must, I mean, it could be somebody that's close to Turban Orr, you know, another council member, maybe. Yeah. I don't remember. I know we had kind of some description in a chapter or two before about the circle breaker, but I'd, I'd have to go back and read that again. I don't remember a whole lot about it. A description as far as like, like his appearance. Well, yeah, cause he was walking along the wall or whatever. And yeah, he was I my don't... strange addictioning the gate. <laughs> I, I just, I've got this really sneaky suspicion that whenever Circle Breaker is revealed to the reader, that we're going to be like, oh my god, god, we're fucking dumb. Like, I, I just, I have this feeling that it's going to be, like, right, like, we should have seen it coming, that it's, you know, it's Krupp, or it's Call, or it's one of these other characters that that we've been introduced to, and we're just not, we're just not at this point putting the pieces together. But, it, yeah. I could be wrong too. I don't think it's Krupp because, well, we'll get there. We'll get to that eventually here later on. Right. Yes. But uh, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting when councilman or when it's revealed that councilman or was following even the smallest trails uh, rather than focusing on the the matter at hand. Um, for some reason, Orr is convinced that spies had infiltrated him. So he has essentially, like, trying to track down a ghost is, is what I'm taking that as. But Well, I'm sure he was pissed. You know, he had his, you know, he was so careful to plan things. He had his majority, and then it got fucked up. Right. And when you think... That, so I probably dove way deeper than this had to be, but the win, the win is said to be snatched from him. Right. So that would mean that Opon doesn't want neutrality with Malazan and Jerusalem or they never would have interfered. Right. Like, but, yeah, I think that makes sense because Opon interfered with Ralic, you know, as he was about to shoot Lady Simital and giving him a new plan in, in, a, in a matter of a breath, right? 
And thus he takes out Councilman Lim, who we know uh, was, I mean, it's not directly said, but I'm taking it that Councilman Lim was in favor of neutrality. And with his vote, that would have been that would have been the way that it was going to go, was that Darujistan was going to uh, unnecessarily make peace with Malazan, but essentially be neutral. Peacefully give up the city. Yes, beautifully. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good assumption. I, I think you're right on that. He probably was you know, in favor of it, and that's, that's why Orr is so pissed off, because he lost you know, one of the guys probably had to do some work to strong arm him to his, you know, the side that he wanted him to vote for. And now it went for not. Right. So it it's, I'm liking, I'm liking all of this that's being introduced. And again, you know, the author isn't being super direct with it. You kind of have to like put the pieces together, but um uh, I don't know if you caught this, but one thing that I found interesting about this section was that the spinning the spinning sound of the coin isn't something that you know we're new to, but any type of emotion is new. Like I don't think I've, I can't recall any type of emotion, but in the section here, um, the circle breaker associates the sound with sadness that like the sound like the sound of a spinning coin sounds sad like we ha- i don't think we've had that before yeah I, I don't i think you're right yeah most of the time well the the last few times i can think of it is you know when somebody's been you know in pursuit basically you know and it's the other few times i can think of you know when we've or several of the few times when we've heard the coin it's it saved somebody's life you know he's dropped down to pick the coin up and you know the crossbow bolt goes over well, i think it was crocus goes over his head right you know and this time you know it, there wasn't really any immediate danger that we're aware of you know unless this informant was going to take him out or something but i don't really think that was implied or anything maybe but also this could be like some type of intervention or um I mean, sad, right? So at this point, he has ripped up the letter that he has written to the L about asking for help. So if the coin spinning is has a sad connotation, is that is the author trying to tell us that that was the wrong crossroad to take? It's possible. I guess, and also, you know, is the coin spinning a direct, a direct interruption from Opan? Like any any character that we have, any type of coin spinning, are they involved in whatever plot is happening? I mean, I, I feel like there's a game that is definitely starting to unravel here. So, are these uh, is Opan? selecting these players uh, and we're getting a sense of that because they hear a spinning coin and then a plan is changed or you know uh you bend down to pick up a yeah I, yeah i feel like there's just so many possibilities i think you know it's somebody who 
is going to have some influence in, in the events to come in some way, shape, or form. You know, whether they're a major player or not, I guess we'll find out. But, you know, it seems like they've been identified as somebody who's going to be in a position where, you know, the action, their actions can, you know, influence things one way or the other. Yeah, very true. I, I would agree with that. Cool, kind of little surreal, real, like surreal scene. Um, and also, I like, I like the progression of time in this chapter. Have you noticed that most of these sections start off with like a description of the sun rising? I did not notice that. Small little takeaway, and you know, again, not really too revealing to the rest of the chapters, but you know, as the story starts off, right? Like Krupp is dreaming, like it's clearly night. And then this section, it's described as like, the light is is slowly waning in the horizon. And then the next section, there's another description of like light flooding into the window, blah, blah, blah. No, I did not notice that. No, that's a, a cool pickup, a cool read to notice that. Cool. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, um, I guess that's all I had as, as far as that little section. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? I don't know that I have anything additional to add to what you have there. I, I feel like you cover things pretty well there. Thanks, man. Well, I guess uh, you want to take her away on section three here? Sure. So we transition to Lady Simtal, and she is pacing. And she had spent a lot of gold the past few days trying to smooth things over. Lim's little bitch had hardly grieved before becoming Murillo's arm candy. And Simtal thought Murillo might be worth cultivating. In uh, quotes there. Maybe doing a little digging, seeing what she can get out of him. Because he was uh, good at being seen. Turbinor was in her bed. And she asked if he had learned anything. He says, there's no way to know where the poison bolt came from. And what assassin uses poison anyways? Vorkin has them using magic. So everything else is essentially obsolete. I, yeah. I mean, if you can use magic, what are you going to use poison for? Um, Turban also thinks that Lim's assassination was not connected to her. That it was just coincidence that it was on her balcony. But Simtal doesn't buy it. She doesn't believe in coincidence, especially since it broke the majority on the night of the neutrality vote. Turbinor starts to get dressed. Simtal wants to know where he's going. He says his influence is needed at the debate that is still going on. Simtal retorts, in quotes, to bend another councilman to your will. Yes, he says, and other things. Of course, the spy, says Simtal. She'd forgotten about him. Or thinks that the neutrality vote will pass in the next few days, at the most. And Simtal thinks that he is just power hungry to become a Malazan high fist, and he will do anything to anyone to get there. Just He's just going to railroad anybody that's in his way. Darujistan be damned. Or says that the fall of the city is inevitable, better to be peaceful than a violent one. Simtal reminds him of what happened to the nobility in Pale, and he says that there are different circumstances in Pale that are not in Darujistan. 
But if Daruzistan's nobility are killed off, it's probably not going to be the worst thing to happen. Simtal asks if Moonspawn is still there, and Orr says it is, but they haven't figured out how to get a message up to it yet. Simtal says maybe everybody up there is dead, and wants to know if the council thought of that. Turban says that they have, and Simtal says that she wants him killed. Orr says maybe, and asks if he'll see her tonight. Lady Simtal replies, maybe. So I, I felt like when Lady Simtal said that she wanted him dead, that she is probably referring to Anamander Rake, since they were talking about Moonspawn. Um, that was kind of my thought on it. Um, but beyond that, it seems like Lady Simtal might uh, kind of be the jealous type a little bit. A little bit of a jealous. And, I, I mean, did you interpret them as fucking? They were fucking, right? Oh, hundred percent. Okay, all right. I I know that her you know vagina is a vice to every councilman, but um, yeah, probably like throwing a hot dog down a hallway, <laughs> digging your finger in the ocean, <laughs> <laughs> right? Fucking a bucket of water, a big one, <laughs> right? Yes, uh, I don't know very many small buckets, but <laughs> uh, yeah, my going back to your um you know, the quote, him killed and, and you thinking that it's Anamanda Rake. And I know that, like, I teased this with you a little bit um, over the week, but here's my interpretation of that is I took that statement as it, as her former husband, which I think is Cole, which is the drunk dude from that table scene in the last chapter because at one point uh Simtel asks or if he's been keeping tabs on her dispossessed beloved i at, originally and this is where wording comes into uh, you know pretty big play in just this author and the way that he writes is for the first, uh, oh man, I, I think I read this this chapter maybe about three and a half times, maybe, but it wasn't until the last where I thought where it said where I picked it up as dispossessed instead of disposed. The whole time I had been reading it as keeping tabs on her disposed beloved, but it's dispossessed. Uh, to which Orr replies with, I always keep an eye on him for you. He hasn't sobered up since you tossed him out on his ass. So I think that she refers to him being killed as her beloved she kicked out. And he no longer has possession of, of um, like the estate. Kind of like you know, if a divorce for whatever reason goes sour and, and one side gets more of the other because of blah, blah, blah reason, which now that I'm thinking about it is I'm wondering if that is the reason why Ralic wants Simtel killed or has this like personal vendetta. Well, it's not personal. It, it was personal because he is a friend to call who is a drunk 
So it's just, that's where my mind is going. And I, I think that that is likely a possibility is that Simtol and Cole were uh, lovers and he was kicked out because at one point um, in the backstory of Cole, Crocus thinks or wonders if he used to be something more and, and thoroughly believes that prior to him being a drunk all the time that he was something more. So there's just these really like two, three, maybe four pieces that are making me think that, th that they're related. Bros before hoes. Bros before hoes. Yeah, that is a good theory, and it you know as you talk about it, I can see that, and it it does seem to make sense in my head too. But you know, uh, I could be totally wrong and, and just uh, drawn at straws here, but I, I'm 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 gonna stick with it. I will die on that hill. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not gonna try to convince you to come down from it yet. Sweet. It's the only other thing I can think of is that uh, I, I don't really think it was a coincidence, you know, that Lim was killed on her balcony, you know. Well, I mean, we know. I it's think not I, th a I think she's right on that. So. <laughs> yeah, in her perspective, she has no idea, or I mean, she, you know, she's right to have that that thought that it's it's definitely not coincidence and we as the reader i mean we know better because it's it's been revealed to us that that was intentional um that he was killed well, i did not remember that part then <laughs> the because relic remember in the in the previous chapter when he hears the coin spinning and opon's intervention to have him not shoot a simtol but kill or or to kill Lim? I, yeah, it's, it's maybe it's just because it's been, a, you know, two weeks, but that part's just not sticking out to me. I'm not, it's not, I'd have to reread it, I guess. But I will trust you. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. And I, I think that, you know, we each kind of take turns surmising these sections. And I feel like when you are surmising a section, you you have more to take away from it because you're analyzing it much more deeper. And, you know, that's probably true. Vice versa for me. I, I believe that was a section that I had to diagnose. So, um, but I, again, all part of the beauties of, of the podcast, but yeah, we, we, as the reader know that, you know, it was purposeful to kill limb, not the intention because the intention of Bralic was vengeance for some of the before said theories um, and Opan inter, inter, intervenes. Thank you. I, don't know, I was going to say intercede, even though that would work too, um, into Bralic's original plan and, and tells him a better one instead. And he, you know, moves his crossbow a little to the left and shoots. Take somebody else out. Yep. Which, you know, I mean, I, I feel like it's it's coming clear, and, and I said it earlier, but the uh, Opan wants Jerujistan and, and Malazan to go head-to-head. -head. Yeah, I think so. 
And at the end of the podcast, I'll remind me to come back to that because I have maybe a larger, a larger view, um, idea or theory about about Opon. At the end of this episode or the end of the book? The end of this episode. Okay, good. I was going to say, I don't know if I can remember that for that long. <laughs> well, I'm going to make sure that you do. Uh, that'd be asking a lot. <laughs> okay, I won't. Ready for yours? Let's do her. Take it away. Uh, Marillo is sipping wine, leaning on a railing, overlooking the street, and says the line, the details are sketchy. We, the reader, are then informed of some type of ornately painted carriages passing through the street. Rally, or, sorry, Marilio makes the statement that the bitch Fander is being carted out. Taking a seat, smiling at his, his companion, he raises his glass, toasting the coming of Geterone's fete. The woman across from him then smiles back and asks him, about asks him uh, about the sketchy details. Marilio replies that Simtel's version said that Councilman Lim was there to accept an invitation personally, as their house was for sure to be invited. The woman across from Marilio asks him if he got one, to which he simply responds with no. Um, this causes a moment of silence between the two, and we are transposed to Marilio's thoughts. Um, and he could never guess or pace, much rather track the woman's thoughts, especially when it dealt with sex, to which Marilio plays his best game. Yeah. His gaze at this point has moved back towards the streets, finally resting on a figure standing in a doorway opposite of him. None other than Ralik Nam smiles and then walks up the street. Marilio thinks that Ralik is being an idiot as he is dressed and moves to that of a killer. Marilio finds it odd that Ralik, whose subtlety is, is rather terrible, uh, but yet Ralik could concoct a, a genius scheme such as this. Uh, the silence is broken as the woman asks if Marilio would like to attempt. Marilio gives her the warmest of smiles and inquires as to how large the Lady Sintel's estate is, to which the woman says that the estate has many rooms. Marilio was picking up what the woman was putting down. And this is actually what Ralik's plan centered around. Although he has his reserves of being an adulterer, he doesn't want to square up to her husband in the duel. He responds to the woman that he wishes for her to accompany him, not as a claim against her husband's. She, the woman agrees, of course, and asks how many invites he will need. Marilio replies with two, because for their rabbit fucking to take place, he would need to bring a companion to avoid suspicion. They both depart as the conversation has ended. Before leaving, uh, Marilio bows and says, Until the evening, Lady Orr. Yeah. Yeah. Marilio's about ready to get down. <laughs> Going down to Bone Town. <laughs> Going down. I've never heard that before. That's great. Uh, I just kind of made it up. 
Uh, I think it's cool that uh, how subtly he is introducing some other, I guess, goddesses like Fander, uh, according to the glossary in the back, is the wolf goddess of winter. Uh, Fete is some type of festival or party. And Gederon is the uh, goddess of spring and renewal or something like that. So they're basically saying goodbye to winter and, and hello to spring. And there is some type of, of party going on and uh, to celebrate, I guess, the seasonal change. The Lady Simtal is, is throwing a, like a party to which all of the nobles are invited not a bad idea you know if winter sucks might as well have a party winter does fucking suck i wonder if these guys have to deal with stupid drivers too ah slow your horse down (laughs) uh uh, yeah probably probably not the same way that we do no no they're probably not going as fast yeah, I uh, I really like this little section because we get we get a you know obviously the plan is is for Marilio to seduce Lady Orr, right? Which we already know another Orr. So this is Turban Orr's wife. So essentially Turban Orr is cheating on her, she's cheating on him. I can only assume, you know, uh, this isn't the first time she's doing it. So there's definitely more at play here. So is this like, are they just together because they're a power couple and and maybe like live on the side of polyamory? Or is this just there being fucking assholes? I would feel like it's probably some sort of... um... I don't know if I want to say like arranged marriage, but there's there's some sort of advantage for them to be married. Right, because I'm assuming that they are probably both from nobility. They both have power, you know, or as a council member. We don't really know much about her, you know, his wife, but yeah, I think I think that you're probably right. It's some type of arranged marriage or they're not necessarily in love with each other they're just they're more powerful as a couple than they would not be right i also really love the reveal of lady or like the whole section you're wondering whose woman is that you know you know is married but like they're definitely going to go find a place to fuck in lady simtel's state Hopefully in every room, like that would be great. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought it was cool how they revealed who the lady was at the end. It's just kind of like a mic drop moment a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because I don't really know much about Turban Orr outside of he wants neutrality and he uh, he's a council member. Well, I don't know that he really wants neutrality. I, I think he just wants what's best for him what's going to get him the most power oh yeah 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 you're right because uh simtel makes the accusation that he just wants to be part of the malzan that he wants to be a high fist of the malzan empire right yeah he's just trying to climb the ladder and i mean i totally understand his perspective right like 
we've mentioned the lackluster army of Jerusalem before. I would have no, I would have absolutely no faith in that either. So, you know, if I wanted to continue to, to live, like what better place than to, I don't know, be in good, you know, better to be at the right hand of the devil than in its path kind of a thing. Right. That's true. All right, man. What do you say about taking on Section 5? Or did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I, I think I'm ready. I didn't have anything else, I don't think. Well, take it away, Jelly Bean. So next section here, we go back to Ralik. Uh, Ralik, he's walking down Moral Street of Jewels. Two guards watch him. Ocelot had said to make it so clear what he was that only a blind man could mistake what he was which was a killer. Ralik made that painfully obvious. The guards watched, but didn't bother him. There was no law saying he couldn't look like a killer. Like the common folk, Ralik hated the nobles, but they made for good business. Once Malazan showed up, he figured that would end. The Empire did not allow Assassin's Guild. Any that were good enough were drafted into the claws. Everyone else was made to disappear. So, I don't know, I'm guessing they probably wind up in a hole in the ground somewhere. Nobility didn't fare any better. He still had work to do, however, and wondered if Murillo had gotten invitations. He and Murillo had argued. He didn't want to sleep with a married woman. He preferred widows, but eventually he gave in. He thought maybe he was worried about getting into duel with Turban Orr, but Ralic thought Murillo could handle himself as he trained and practiced with a rapier with him and thought he was an adept with it. Ralik had been wondering, or sorry, Ralik had been wandering. He saw a familiar face, then looked around and realized where he had wandered to, and then he looked back to the familiar person on the other side of the street. I feel like this was a, you know, a nice little pass-through section. I, I didn't really have a ton. I didn't actually have anything uh, to dissect you know, from this, the only, the only question I have is like, I know that they capitalized adept. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's like some type of status or ranking potentially. Uh, yeah. I think it must be some sort of like ranking. Okay. I'm just going to go with that then. And then I, I mean, who do you think this familiar person was that he saw on the other side of the street? I think it must be Marilio. I think it's Crocus. And, I mean, I guess it's not really any any big reveal, but in the next section, the section following that, um, Ralik and Crocus have a, I wouldn't say a confrontation, but more of like a an unexpected meeting together. The only reason I thought maybe Murillo is because in your last section, you know, Murillo was saying how obvious it is he's a killer. So I, I was kind of thinking maybe, you know, this is, occupying the same time as just from Ralik's perspective instead of Murillo's. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of that. But I guess I guess what made me think that it was Crocus and not Murillo the way that you're saying it is in the scene with Lady Orr and uh, Murillo, um, Ralik Nam kind of like smiles and acknowledges Murillo on the balcony across the street and then walks walks away, essentially. That's true. 
but I, I see where I definitely see where you're going with that because it totally could be like him walking up to where Marilio and, and Lady Aura are, are having this drink, right? I think it's possible. Yeah. But but I wouldn't rule out your idea either though. I guess just that's where I, I feel like that's to me personally the 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 obvious. And as we read section six, we can kind of come back to that too. Sure. Well if you're ready uh for section six, I think I am as well. Wonderful. Crocus is is walking along Lakefront Street shortly before the third tiered wall. Crocus is deep in thought about his journey to thievery. Something he shares uh, with his uncle, a mockery of the councilman in Majesty Hall, and the struggle to obey and respect authority. These elements led him to a life of thievery, but a side of it he never acknowledged before was the pure invasion of privacy. For days and nights, visions of the naked woman lying in the bed returned to him, despoiling her most precious possession, her privacy. With his thoughts still lingering on his regrets for what he'd done, he continues to walk up the charms of Anise Street, passing through the gate to the third-tiered wall. He eventually sees Turban Orr's estate. Passing by the guards at the estate, he finds a door to an alleyway. Opening the door, he enters and gets halfway into the alley when a hand covers his mouth, and he feels a dagger pressed up against his side. Frozen. He is turned around and meets the eyes of Ralek Nob. Ralek tells Crocus to leave Turban Ors to stay alone, and with a shrug of indifference, he assures Ralek that is, it was just a thought, and continues on his way out the alley back onto the street. As he continues to walk to the left of him, he observes the High Gallows Hills and notes that the five nooses are still swinging, letting us, the reader, know that it had been a long time since a high criminal was hung. Crocus wonders if Ralek had followed him, thinking that the assassin had marked Orr as a potential contract. Crocus wonders who could have offered such a contract without, or thinking without a doubt that it was probably a fellow noble. As he continues on, he puts his hands in his pockets and feels a coin. He pulls it out and recalls the events of picking up this said coin as a crossbow crossbow bolt zipped by his head. In the morning light, he was able to study the coin more in-depthly, noticing the first side had the head of a man with some ruins of a language he didn't recognize. Flipping the coin over, he observed the other side to be a woman. He wonders where it had fallen from or possibly how it managed to come into his possession. By this time, Crocus had departed the East Gate and was now traveling on a road called Jetsam's Worry. His destination was Worrytown, on the outskirts of the last free city. Making his way to the Worrytown's largest structure, making his way to the Worrytown's largest structure, a tavern. He passes by some refugees from Pale. With the coin still in hand, he enters the Boar's Tears. He sees a familiar figure who is gesturing wildly. Krupp is telling an elaborate and probably exaggerated story to a man sitting at the table. Crocus pats Krupp's shoulder on the way to joining the table. 
and the story essentially ends. The other gentleman leaves. Krupp has called the bar wench uh, and asks for some drinks. As the drinks are served, Krupp asks Crocus what he can do for him. Crocus, kind of whispering to Krupp, tells that it's about the last time, saying that Krupp would be out here trying to sell the stuff. Krupp elaborately tells him that he hasn't that he hasn't sold anything. And then Crocus asks if Krupp could return the items to him at a later point. At this point, Krupp kind of notices the coin in Crocus's hand uh, and asks if he can inspect the coin. While doing so, Crocus makes the comment that he plans to thieve the Aura State. Krupp, still inspecting the coin, is, is listening, but not at the same time. Uh, he's making comments about the coin's make and design, uh, kind of bashing it, really. And then he kind of comes back to Crocus's comment about the Aura State and tells him that it would require caution. Krupp then asks Krakus if he could do him a favor and if he could check outside the inn for a merchant with a green wagon. Krokus gets up and he does, and outside he finds nothing. Returning to the table, Krupp sets the coin down and tells Krakus that it's worthless. Krakus says that he doesn't really have any interest in selling it, uh, but that he would actually like to keep it for good luck. They both, at this point, finish their drink and uh, head back into town together. As Krupp arises, he observes Crocus looking at his hand. Krupp asks, well, what is the matter? And Crocus replies that he must have picked up or touched red wax somewhere. Um, and then they exit and leave the inn. I thought the whole bit with Krupp inspecting the coin was really neat, but I did not remember the very end part where Crocus thinks he touched red wax or picked it up somewhere. Did not remember that at all. Yeah, it's like the last, the last like two or three sentences, I think. The red wax will tie into the last section a little bit. Yeah, so this is, you know, going back to the section before this, this is why I think that it was uh, Crocus that Rallick was seeing on the other side of the street. Yeah, I, I, that does make more sense. So I, I agree with you there. That's makes a lot more sense. Seems quite a bit more likely. Right. Um, but I mean, the one thing that doesn't really make sense to me is that in the section with Rallick uh, walking down Merule Street of Jewels, and then Crocus walking along Lakefront Street, and then eventually turning down another road that didn't match Merule Street. So. Didn't quite make sense as far as like the street names, but uh, I'm sure we're missing something. Yeah, I mean, maybe different groups of people just have different names for the same streets. Uh, or, yeah, maybe it was just a different street. Right, yeah. Uh, or like a Kitty Corner or the Parallel or one side of the street is Lakefront and the other is, is Marule. Right, but um, I thought I thought the high criminal, like the high gallows hills, that little segue was was kind of cool to me because, and I didn't write it in in the summary, but I noted it that uh, according to this section, 
there is like a high gallow hills and then there's a low gallow hills and crocus makes the the comparison to the fact that you know it's been forever since a high criminal was hung so i'm assuming like a criminal of nobility but with the low gallow hill the ropes are replaced like almost constantly so i don't know yeah it was like every like four or five days or something like that. right which tells me that either one or two things are happening that the nobility, which I'm assuming is what is the High Gallows Hills, he's also kind of perusing around like the the the, the noble district, right? Because he's passing by Orr's Turban Orr's place. So is the nobility not committing any crimes or are they just not holding each other accountable? Whereas in the lower district, yeah. you know. Who gives a shit, right? Like, you're poor, you committed a crime, too fucking bad, you're dead. Yeah, I'm sure the nobility are committing crimes, they can just pay their way out of it. Right. So, I don't know, I just, I just thought that was a really cool way to add in, like, some, some tension. And I know that Crocus himself is, is pretty, like, anti-nobility. Um, so, because he earlier in the section has thoughts about you know how him and his uncle kind of mock the councilman at majesty hall funny how that works the rich make the rules most of the time huh yes i yes i completely agree um as fucked up as that is <laughs> it is i also thought it was funny um again you know going going back to the interaction with this this man that krupp is is telling some elaborate story about uh as crocus interrupts uh krupp from this elaborate story uh you crocus in in a moment of humility is like oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to like interrupt and the guy is like no no that's okay i'm fucking out of (laughs) here i gotta get gone like no i'm gonna take this and didn't take this moment get the fuck out you gotta see opportunities yes exactly um but yeah i section seems to be again you know there's I, i feel like there's a lot of coin in this chapter there's a lot of sections that have something to do with a coin yeah it seems kind of streaky though sometimes doesn't it seems like we get a lot of it and then we might go a little while without hearing anything about it yeah that's very true i know this was a little bit of a longer section but uh, what do you say you want to move on to section seven sure this uh i think along with the very first section and then this I think are probably my favorite parts of this chapter. Yeah, this was, this was, I liked it. This was my favorite. We are at white gold's round, uh, which circles an abandoned tower shops line the streets around the grounds around the tower. It was known as hinters tower and it was known for stories of death and madness. Towards dusk when people thinned out, Murillo entered the round security was tighter this time of day. 
approached a merchant's table and asked if this is Crut of Talion's shop. It was. He asked if there had been any customers, to which Crut said one, and he had bought a Golis gem. Extremely rare and dangerous to get. 100 slaves lost for each gem pried out from the mine. Crute takes Marilli out back as he does not keep them in the shop. There's a hole in the wall, and Crute tells him to hurry up and to tell Relic the guild is not happy with him sharing their secrets. He crawled through a dark tunnel and arrives at a door. He calls out for Relic, who responds from behind that he is late. Before Relic is done speaking, Murillo has his rapier drawn. Ralek compliments his reflexes, and Murillo puts his weapon away. Murillo says he thought he would find him in the tower, and Ralek is like, the fuck, dude? It's not it. Are you crazy? Murillo says he thought those were just stories to keep people away. Ralek says that some nights you can walk up to the gates and hear the pleas and threats of the wraith crowded at the door wanting out. A madman named Hinter is rumored to sleep inside. The wraiths trapped in Murillo to enter the tower and find out firsthand where the wraiths come from. He thanks Ralek for the warning as he was close to entering the tower. Murillo says he has two invitations to Lady Simtal's Fateh. I'm not sure how to say that word. but and Ralek asks if he's seen Kroop. Kroop's nose twitch. Murillo says he doesn't think Krupp suspects that they are up to anything. Murillo says that Krupp's memory is, quote, revised hourly, and all that holds him together is fear of being discovered. Ralek comments that Krupp is slippery. They leave so Krupp can close up shop. Murillo looks back to see if he can see any wraiths, but all he sees is darkness, and that emptiness scares him more than seeing any wraiths that might have been there. So I think personally that uh, Murillo's quote, it gives us the identity of the eel. And I think that it is Krupp um, saying that, you know, he's just afraid of being discovered and around slippery. Like, I don't know. I think you, you think of an eel as, you know, like slimy, you know, they're going to be slippery. Um, you know, they're in and out of things, people's business, that type of thing. So that's, that's what I think. I think Krupp is the eel. And I mean, whenever you see him, like, you know, he's checking out that coin saying it's worthless, you know, this and that. And, and maybe the coin doesn't have much monetary value, but I, I don't think that it's a worthless coin. I think it's actually quite valuable. Um, you know, though we may not know its exact use yet. Yeah, I um, I know that you had brought this up uh, prior to the podcast and in some of our conversations, and I think that you had finished the chapter before I got to it. So when I read that too, this is what I thought you were talking about uh, when you were making your association with Krupp and uh, the the eel. I, I liked your little slippery like an eel, too. <laughs> yeah. 
Like that's a, that, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, the animal is, you know, I, from what I understand, you know, it, it's uh, like mud, like, you know, muddy, muddy eel, slippery. I think it was, it's subtle enough, you know, it would be easy not to pick up on that. But, for, you know, for whatever reason, when I read that, it just, it just jumped right out at me. Like a drunk friend falling out of a car. I don't know what you mean. Oh, that's how, that's how hard it hit. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Damn, I for sure that one was going to land. Oh, well. No, I'm like, I've never done that before. Never have so drunk you've just fell out of a car. No, not even while like you're getting in or out. Um, I kind of stumbled out once to puke. Um, did you? Did you? Uh, I like the lore in the lore and like the world building that takes place in this chapter. What did you think about it? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Like with the tower, like you know, is is it just a ghost story or is there some truth to it? Well, from what I remember from... But nobody's brave enough to go in there and find out for sure. Right, right. Yeah. From what I remember, though, the uh, in the glossary, it is a uh, sorcerer. Hinter, Hinter's tower belonged to some, like, mad sorcerer or something like that. I don't know if, if you saw... Yeah, they talk about that a little bit, you know, in the... Yeah. But it was... It was... It was neat. And then even, um, you know, when they're talking about these gyms, you know, that, you know, a hundred people died just to get these things. You know, that's an insane cost. You know, things got to be insanely expensive to get. And it's crazy because we have no idea where this thing is. <laughs> you know, as far as this world is concerned, we have no idea what any type you know like where it is where it's located you know anybody from it but to get a sense of that much from that little of information is is pretty phenomenal but you know uh i i i guess it's 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 weird to me that they're using the word wraith it's not something that i would commonly associate with like the dead um i guess i can see it but that's just me. Outside of the wraiths, which I thought were cool and you know really world building, uh, and the crop, the crop, and associating him to the eel, um, which also brings us back around to the circle breaker, right? So we know that the circle breaker is fears turban ore and going up against him and being anonymous uh, that the only thing that is in his favor is the fact that like nobody knows who he is outside of Krupp potentially but why is it that he would not ask Krupp for help are we maybe only seeing a a side of Krupp that just kind of seems stupid and obnoxious but maybe he's a fucking asshole yeah I think he's definitely got like two sides to him you know i mean he's he's talking to himself in third person all the time so i mean he kind of almost makes you wonder if he's got split personalities or something yeah i get that sense too i I think that there's something there i think you're dead on there but yeah i I guess i'm cool moving on if you are yeah for sure 
All right, we got another long one, so bear with us. Um, <clears throat> bright morning uh, pours through the windows of the alchemist Baruch's study, still in his jammies, pajamas. He is sitting at the jammies. He is sitting at the map table. Uh, he had been painting a wash of watered-down red paint over the map, indicating the areas now held by the Malazan Empire. Street noises became so loud, and he just essentially concludes that it must be construction outside. A loud crack startles Baruch, and he accidentally knocks over the inkwell onto the map. Baruch gets up and crosses the room to the window. Looking outside, he asks the workers who, who is in charge. Like, hey, hey, you down there, who the fuck's in charge? Um, as he's doing this, a soft knock interrupts his scolding of the construction workers. Roald enters and explains to Baruch that one of his agents has arrived. Walking back to the map table, he rolls the map up, and as he's stowing away the map, uh, this agent forcefully enters into Baruch's study. It's none other than our dear, festively plump friend Krupp. Baruch with his back towards the window, is studying the fat man, using his handkerchief to wipe sweat from his brow. Baruch asks Krupp if he's heard anything. Krupp stumbles in his relay of information, and Baruch is like, you know, just fucking get on with it. He then, Krupp, then blurts out um, about the assassin's war on the rooftops, stating that the guild is, is taking heavy losses. Baruch asks about Ralik, to which Krupp says that he hasn't seen him. Baruch then asks if the Assassin War is like an internal thing, or is it an external thing? Krupp just simply says that it's not uh, an internal thing. Reflecting on the Assassin's War, uh, Baruch notes that the guild is strong, but that of the Claw is stronger, and often the Empress will recruit from within city's assassins' guilds. And unable to discern the purpose of this assassins' war, and even just the war itself, Baruch dismisses Krupp, and Krupp is like, no, 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 wait, 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 I have more. I have more to tell. Joining Baruch at the window, he begins the long, drawn-out explanation of luck and fate and the aura of twins. Baruch simply responds with open or open. Krupp raising his hand reveals a wax disc. Turning uh, during this, uh, Krupp is speaking in what I'm interpreting as prophecy. So Baruch feels this pull and can't quite understanding, can't quite understand or comprehend why he's got this pull to this this series of Krupp's words. Um, Finally, breaking the from the trance, uh, asks if Krupp is speaking of a coin. Krupp lays the wax mold of Crocus's coin on the windowsill and tells Baruch to study it. Baruch, using his warren and his, his powers, lifts the coin into the air and studies the side with the lady, then turns it over and studies the side of the lord. The coin mold starts to spin like suddenly and out of nowhere and Baruch's warren is is resisting the pressure that is growing uh with with like a sound eventually the warren collapses 
And Krupp mentions that no mages worn can stand the twins' wind. <laughs> I thought of fart that when I read that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the disc uh, is still spinning and engulfs in like blue flames and is like like splattering uh, like hot wax at every, like all over. And then it essentially just kind of dwindles into nothing. Um, uh, and, and as it dwindles into nothing, the pressure and the spinning sound fades with its disappearance. Baruch, you know, braces himself against the windowsill and asks who bears this coin. Krupp replies that it's uh, it's a lad known to him, Rallet, Call, and Marilio. Baruch states that it, it, it can't simply be a coincidence. Baruch then explains that uh, Opan has emperor, entered the gambit, and all that Krupp has named must take part on his mission. Uh, Krupp asks, oh, what is this mission? Baruch replies that they need to protect the coin bearer at all costs. Krupp then reveals, or sorry, Krupp then reveals the name of Krakus to Baruch in a moment of empathy for Krakus. Baruch makes a remark that the name sounds familiar, uh, to which Krupp just stares at him and, and says nothing. Baruch kind of ignoring uh ignoring the, the blank stare, excuses Krupp and tells him to keep him informed. Krupp then leaves and Baruch returns to looking out the window. Uh, having a moment to himself, he thinks that if uh, if Opan is, is, you know, entered the gambit, Opan has a way of, of ruining plans, thus unable to rely on his ability to predict or to prepare for contingencies, or to work out any possibilities to seek out ones best suited for his plans. And then whispering to himself, he says, you, the Empress, I know you are here somewhere. I'll find you with or without Open's luck. Damn. A lot happened there. Like, I, yeah, uh, a lot did happen. Um, you know, at the beginning when the loud crack startles Baruch, I'm assuming it was, you know, something from the construction that was happening outside. Um, it is said that the ink covers Jerugistan and some areas to the south. And uh, it's told in the section that Baruch is shaken by it and what he is interpreting as an omen. So I think I think what's happening here is is a little foreshadowing and that Jerusalem is going to fall to Malzahn because at the beginning of this section he is essentially coloring this map that he has of Genabacus uh, red to indicate the occupying of the Malzahn empire and this little tidbit of as the inkwell is knocked over from him being startled. He sees that as an omen because the ink now covers Jerugistan and areas of the south. I don't know if you caught that or not. I remember 
Yeah, I remember reading that and thinking that too the first time, and then a few sentences later, you know, they kind of revealed, you know, that, and I was like, oh, well, damn it. I kind of wanted to have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, in in this section, Krupp says that he hasn't seen Ralic, but we know that that's not true, or we know that 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 isn't true, right? When did he see him? It, well, I mean, I'm assuming that these chapters are um, in in kind of like sequential order, so it would it wouldn't be anywhere in this chapter, but in the last chapter for sure, because they all have their their uh, their little table conversation at the end of chapter six. Oh yes, yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, I don't know why you lie about that. So that's kind of where um, I don't. I, I, I Krupp is just giving me some weird, weird vibes because also, if you remember in the uh, previous chapter when he gets a message from or Baruch get the, the alchemist gets a message from the L um, that was delivered by our circle breaker. And in that message, it says, we, you know, we, the L or whatever it said, uh, we align with your, your motivations. So is, is Krupp just like, yeah, I don't, yeah, there's just something about what he's doing that just doesn't make sense. That's I think he's kind of playing both sides. You know, he pretends to be dumber than he is, I think. To avoid suspicion. We know that he, you know, he doesn't think of himself to be a fool. So he definitely feels like he, I think that he thinks that he is smarter than everybody else. And I think that we touched on that a little bit in, in some of the previous episodes. But I think that, like, it's starting to come back to a little bit of fruition. Because all these, like, really small, tiny, like, almost, like, missable things are alluding to it. Yeah, I think he's. Like I said I think he's kind of pretending to be dumber than he is, but he's at the same time. I don't think he's as smart as he thinks. Yeah, and also we're getting more of Opon, and I'm uh, now. You don't have to remind me, but uh, this is where I think I'm going to talk about my theory with everything that's happened so far and, and Opon. Okay is I think that Opan is playing is playing it, it is playing a game here, but I think that they are playing two games or potentially more than two. And I think this because if you remember when Gnose is pretty like after he's been stabbed by Sari, we get that we get that scene where he's like in that purgatory type scene and opon you know approaches him right if you remember the the man uh was scared of whatever it was that they heard coming and it was the woman the lady who was like no 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 fuck that we're gonna fuck with this guy right but so my thought is is like what if the lady is in Gnose's corner and the Lord is in Crocus's corner, and they are interfering with this, and Baruch and Krupp kind of 
are starting to see a little bit more of the picture than the reader. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Like, like, is it some type of bet and, you know, uh, Karul is now in the picture because Opan is doing something. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like there's just, there's so many things <laughs> that, anything could be that it's it's hard to like like pinpoint the exact i guess reasons but it's a it's a good one you're right there's a lot going on here for sure yeah a lot of a lot of things are coming into the realm but um i guess outside of this chapter and and you know what are what are your thoughts on like, how do you feel as far as like the famil- the familiarity with how the book is going so far? I feel like it's kind of hard to predict where things are going to go. I've got a little bit of an idea, like in the short term, where things are going to go. But beyond that, I I just I don't know. I mean, it's I have a really hard time saying. I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, because like we know in the first section that Karul, uh, like, I don't know if he really reveals, but he like tells the reader that like, you know, it is mortals that essentially take down the gods and kill them, right? It is, is how I interpreted that like statement that he said. Yeah, I, I just, I feel like I feel like it's it's a, a game with many players, and I feel like Tattersail and all of the bridge burners and like you know Gnos, they're all on the 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 Malazan side, right? And then you've got you've got Baruch and Crocus and Krupp and all these guys in Jerujistan that don't want Malazan even even neutral like to have any type of neutrality with them so and at this point i feel like they are opposing forces like we've got the i don't want to say heroes and villains because that's because i don't know who the heroes and villains really are but that's just kind of like how i would describe this is that we've got a group that are either hero or villain and then we've got this other group that are, are either hero or villain or anti-villain or whatever the case may be and there's either going to be some type of clash or conflict uh with either these guys or they come together and they they both fight the gods or yeah i don't, I don't know dude but yeah i think it's, it's just like you said it's i don't really know who the heroes or villains are either just Seems like everybody's trying to survive. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Survive. Definitely survive. As, as you said, I feel like we'll, we'll probably see in some capacity um, our two groups meet up, or at least portions of them, you know, uh, Tattersail and, and that side of things, meeting up with Rallick and Crocus to, to some extent. I think there'll be there's got to be some crossover at some point, I think. I, I, I agree. I think that there's going to be some type of 
confrontations probably the worst word, but some type of interaction between the, the two groups. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe they all get together and they decide how much the, the Malazan Empire is a piece of shit. Could be, and then they just kind of join forces and go after the Empress. I guess we'll just have to, to read this next chapter, which from what I understand is literally like 11 pages long. So I guess I'm not sure if our next podcast will be anywhere near two hours long. If we have a two-hour-long podcast over ten pages, I, I will, I will give this up. She <laughs> means we had a lot to talk about those eleven, twelve pages. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess you know a bunch of shit could go down, but yeah, I like this chapter. I like where the the book is going. I'm having a lot of fun reading this. In all of its cryptic, very cryptic ways. Yeah, what is uh, the next uh, sub book is called The Plan, if I remember I think right. It's called The Mission. The Mission, sorry, the you're mission. right. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, you know, we've had some setup for some missions on both sides of things, so I'm sure we'll, we'll see those. Yes, yes, yeah, you're right. I totally forgot because we haven't, we haven't, uh, we haven't been in the graces of soft pillows yet. So, or for a minute. It has been a minute. Has been a minute, yes. But at the same time, it feels so long ago, right? Is it, or am I just crazy? No, it's, it seems like it's been a little, little bit for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to, to read on. I mean, honestly, I'll probably, I'll probably knock out these 11 pages before I go to bed here because I'm not tired. I should be tired, but I'm not tired. I will probably not do that tonight. No worries. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I will go to bed. I guess I don't have anything else to add to the sub-book of Jerudistan. I don't think so either. I don't think I have anything else. It was nice to get to know another set of characters. That was cool. I wasn't expecting that either. Like, that first chapter of the sub-book Jerudistan, I, I thought that it was going to kind of go back, like, back and forth between perspectives. Like, I thought it was just another... You know what I'm trying to say? Like, it was just another... Another yeah. segue from the main characters that we had already been introduced. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the, the format of these two sub books are, are what kind of driving my theory upon uh, the whole villain and hero conversation we had. I can't wait to get started here with the next one and see where it takes us. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, yeah, you want to tell us where our audience can interact with us? Sure. One thing that just popped into my mind here was that uh, somebody here, not in the last week or two, had left us a a rating on Apple Podcasts. They left us a five star rating, which is pretty awesome. Um, uh, hopefully, that's well deserved for us. Uh, we'd love to see more ratings, honest ratings. I wouldn't want a five star rating just because it's easy. So. Give us an honest rating. Um, we would love feedback too, good, bad, otherwise, um, just to let us know how we're doing. But you can find us uh, now. We are available on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget Anchor. Anchor, yeah, that's kind of Spotify, isn't it? I always thought that there were two entities because there's two links, but I could be wrong. 
Uh, okay, so Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google. So you got a few, a few choices where you can find us. And you can also interact with us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, as well as Instagram. Instagram. Um, all you got to do is search for D and J's Epic Quest or D and J's Epic Q. Um, we are a bit more interactive on Twitter than we would be Instagram or Facebook, uh, but feel free to give us a follow and a like. Definitely. All right, man. Well, as always, it was uh, it was good to talk to you, and uh, enjoy the rest of your night. You as well. We'll talk soon.